0: So this temptation story is in Matthew, Luke, and in Mark. And in Mark, which is the first gospel uh, written, 60-ish, so it's Mark and then Matthew and then in 100 it's, it's Luke. In Mark, this whole scene is two sentences. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness And he was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. That's the entire story in Mark. Matthew and Luke have a little bit more to the story because I can imagine people are like, so, okay, so what did Jesus do in the desert for 40 days? And so Matthew and Luke fill in a little bit of the story. And Matthew writes that... Part of the temptations were this conversation between Jesus and the devil. The temptations come in the form of a back and forth with you know bits of scripture being tossed around a little bit. Devil says one thing, Jesus says another. And we still see that a lot nowadays. We? we see that an awful lot. There are so many statements and so many contradictions in the Bible that we could justify, any position we want to take, and have Scripture to back it up. But we need to make sure that we aren't pulling bits of Scripture out of context to prove our point. That's called proof texting. And a point that might be, you know, using using a point in the story to prove your point that might be the total opposite of what that story is intended to say. Have you ever heard anybody quote Paul and say that, those who don't work don't eat. In context, Paul is writing to Christians who think that Jesus is about to return any minute now, and so they don't have to do anything. They think they are in the, the in crowd, and they can just rest on their laurels. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Even though Jesus might be coming back any minute now, you still need to work. You have the wrong idea here. Paul is not using this as a way to pass judgment and offer justification to deny people food who don't have jobs. But I've often heard this section of Thessalonians quoted when people want to pass judgment on people who are on welfare or when politicians want to cut food stamps. Another bit of scripture that is often quoted to justify a position is Luke. When I sent you out without a purse or a bag or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, No, not a thing. And Jesus said to them, But now, one who has a purse must take it, and likewise a bag, and one who has no sword must sell it, and sell his cloak, and buy one. And that's usually where people who want to use Jesus to justify their position on violence or justify owning an armament will invoke God's name. They forget to quote the rest. The rest of it puts it in context because Jesus continues on. For I tell you, the scripture must be fulfilled in me. And the scripture that Jesus quotes is, he must be counted among the lawless. And indeed, what is written about me says Jesus must be fulfilled. And they said, look, Here are two swords, and Jesus replied, It's enough. Jesus was telling his disciples to buy swords because scripture must be fulfilled. He must be counted among the lawless, and two was enough to get that done. Or John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. And they don't include 3.17, which says, Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So context is important. The devil takes Scripture out of context. Jesus uses it in context. A good example is that second temptation. If you are the Son of God... Toss yourself down. God will protect you. Theologian Robert Bryant writes that this part of the scripture does not endorse testing God's protective grace for the sake of self-assurance. Jesus rebukes the devil with a text of his own and he quotes from Deuteronomy. It applies, Jesus applies it faithfully in context. Jesus, says Bryant, will not use scripture to make himself safe. In 1989, which as I was driving here I realized is almost 30 years ago, which is way like, ah, 1989 was like last week. But anyway, there was a fellow named Dennis Arcand and he wrote and directed a movie uh, called Jesus of Montreal. It's set in that Canadian city, and it's French with English subtitles, and so you're going to get to read, so it doesn't really matter how loud it is, but it it should work. Um, It won uh, the Jurors Award at the Cannes Film Festival, and it won 12 Genies, which is the Canadian equivalent of our Academy Awards, and so this was a remarkable movie. And uh, my New Testament professor, uh, Brandon Scott, of all of the Jesus movies ever made, this is his favorite. And it tells the story of a priest in a small church in Montreal. And he wants to update, uh, they do a passion play every year. And this, uh, this priest wants to update that play. And so he hires an actor named Daniel. And Daniel reworks this play based on some new archaeological finds and some new understandings of the Talmud. Daniel hires some of his friends, and they put on a fairly avant-garde, challenging passion play. And more people are coming to see this play. The people really like this raw take on this story, and it gains public and critical acclaim, and the priest of the church does not like it. Um, So the priest tells the acting troupe that they need to stop Doing this. They shut down the play, much to the dismay of the people who are watching it. But as the story goes on, the events in the lives of the actors in the play begin to resemble the events of the life of the apostles. And at one point in the movie, the main character, Daniel, goes into a rage because of the way that his fellow actors are being treated. He's arrested for disturbing the peace and brought up on charges of vandalism. And while he's in court, I'm guilty, I plead guilty. So the judge tells him, and I don't know if this is part of the story or if this is what they just do in Montreal, but the judge tells him that he needs to speak to a psychologist. He does the psychologist finds him, quote unquote, sane, and then the judge sets a date uh, for him to be sentenced. And in the meantime, Daniel meets a lawyer who is willing to represent Daniel in his sentencing. But before that, Daniel and this lawyer have a conversation. Now, this is the scene that I'm going to show you, and it's kind of long. It's the longest uh, clip that I've ever shown. This movie's on YouTube. If you wanna, you wanna watch it. Um, The scene shows the conversation with the psychologist, and then it cuts to the scene with the lawyer. So did you see the parallels in that story uh, between Matthew and the inferences and the questions by the psychologist and the quote-unquote business opportunities that were offered by the lawyer? All for the greater good, of course. All for the greater good. I mean, how many people would have preferred that Jesus, you know, the people that are starving, you know, why doesn't Jesus just turn that rock into a loaf of bread, right? Feed my sheep. There are more rocks than there are loaves of bread. How many of us that fight for social justice would think that just be able, alleviating hunger just by sort of waving a magic wand? I mean, that would be awesome. How many children in this town only have meals when they go to school? would prefer that Jesus turn that stone into a loaf of bread. And after a long time of going without, Jesus is really pretty famished. It would be tempting for him to do that. But in refusing to do so, Jesus aligns himself with us. He's sharing in our humanity. He's sharing in our suffering. Now Jesus could just whip up a loaf of bread on the spot. The future lesson of feeding the 5,000 would be missed. Author and theologian Dom Crossan puts forth the idea that in the kingdom of God, the world is cooperative. He quotes Desmond Tutu who says that we without God cannot, and God without us will not. And a lot of people think that Tutu is quoting Augustine, but what Augustine actually said was that God created you without you, and he will not save you without you. So yes, this kingdom of God is collaborative. Us working hand in hand with God. A Jesus who could just wave a wand and turn all the black and white into technicolor would defeat the whole purpose. But that's what the temptation is about, isn't it? We rarely come up with something so dramatic as Satan standing right in front of us quoting quoting scripture at us. But we're often tempted by the smaller things those things that stroke our egos, especially when that ego stroking involves us doing something good. Perhaps our good deed will make us famous. Or maybe we can gain some notoriety or public congratulations. Theologian Marietta Anschutz writes that temptation comes to us in moments when we look at others and feel insecure because we don't think we have enough. Temptation rules us. Making us able to look away from people who have needs. People who are affected by poverty and hunger and disease. Temptation rages in moments when we allow our temper to define our lives. Or when addiction to wealth and power and influence or vanity or an inordinate need to control defines who we are temptation wins when we engage in little lies little small sins the racist joke or the questionable business practice for the greater good the criticism of a spouse who isn't around temptation wins she writes when we get so caught up in the trappings of life that we lose sight of life itself these are the faceless moments of evil, she writes. While mundane, they work too uh, in the recesses of our lives and our souls. So the challenge then is to find out where our choices bring us closer to the will of God. yeah. It's not an easy task. <laughs> I can tell you a billion instances where I have been in a situation where the better choice, the God-centered choice, was not what I wanted to do. Not at all. I have been known to struggle and to fight only to give in with an exasperated, all right, God, have it your way. Your will, not mine, be done. And we all have moments like that, I think. We all have moments in the desert where... You know, we are recovering from sickness or addiction, or we have spent time in prison, or we haven't had jobs for a while, and we really, really want one. Some of us have been through rough divorces. Some of us are new to town, feeling disconnected or lonely. Beyond all this, though, beyond this time in the wilderness, God has been faithful. We have encountered God in the wilderness. And we have been transformed. We find ourselves in the desert, confronted with questions, challenges that are too big for us to bear, we think. But we are not alone. Let us remember that in the desert of our lives, God bears us up. God sustains us. God strengthens us. Even in our weakness. God bears us up. And God's love endures forever. Amen.